A big announcement from Minnesota's 8th District. Congressman Rick Nolan says he will retire at the end of his term this year and not run for re-election. The 74-year-old Democrat narrowly defeated Republican challenger Stuart Mills in his last two re-election bids in the 8th District. Nolan says he's announcing his decision now to give other candidates time to build their campaigns. Mills had previously said he would not be running in 2018. Now, on Monday, there are two special elections here in Minnesota to replace the two state lawmakers who stepped down over sexual misconduct allegations late last year. In the Southeast Metro, Republican Denny McNamara and Democrat Carla Bigham are hoping to win the Senate District 54 seat previously held by Dan Schoen. Schoen's replacement will be on the job the remainder of the term, which is three more years. And in southern Minnesota, Republican Jeremy Munson and Democrat Melissa Wagner are vying for the House District 23B seat. That was the seat held for many years by Republican Tony Cornish, who resigned late last year. The winner of that race will serve out the rest of this year and then have to run again in the 2018 general elections. We're getting a better idea of who may be on the ballot in 2018 governor's race. Caucuses were held Tuesday night, and there are two clear frontrunners for governor after those caucuses, but one comes with a big asterisk. We'll start there with Republican Party caucus results. Jeff Johnson is the runaway winner with 45 percent. Undecided finished second at 16 percent. Keith Downey at 15 percent, Mary Giuliani Stevens, and Philip Parrish finished with 12 percent each. The bad news for all of the Republicans is that only about 12,000 people showed up for caucuses across the state. And then there is the unknown factor looming over the entire Republican caucus night. Will former Governor Tim Pawlenty get in the race? The fact there were a lot of uncommitteds means that these people are available for some candidate other than those who have already announced. Well, who might that be? Tim Pawlenty. Now, the turnout on the DFL side was also relatively low, but it was still three times bigger than the Republican turnout. The race was also more competitive. Tim Walls won with 31 percent. Rebecca Otto finished second at 20 percent. Aaron Murphy finished third, essentially tied with uncommitted at 13 percent. Chris Coleman was next at 12 percent, followed by Tina Liebling at 6 percent and Paul Thiessen at 5 percent. Thiessen dropped out the next morning after his poor showing in the caucuses. The frontrunner, Tim Walls, still has work to do, though, to get to the 60 percent needed for endorsement at the state convention. So he needs a lot of help from other candidates. They need to drop out and support him. On the other hand, Rebecca Otto is uh, a credible candidate at this point, and she may be the metro liberal alternative to Walls. Now, so far, Democrat Paul Thiessen is the only candidate to drop out of the governor's race in either major party. If Tim Pawlenty gets in on the Republican side, that could force others out on the Republican side. And still no definitive word yet on whether Republican House Speaker Kurt Dowd plans to jump into the race. A Ramsey County judge is considering whether to stop Lieutenant Governor Michelle Fishbach from also serving in the Minnesota Senate. This as the legislative session starts just over a week from now. In a Senate where Republicans have just a one-seat majority, Fishbach's vote is crucial. Democrats say she needs to step down from her Senate seat. Fishbach says a Minnesota Supreme Court ruling from 120 years ago says she can stay. 
Senator slash Lieutenant Governor Michelle Fishbach went to court defending her right to hold both positions. We're confident in our arguments. Where is the governing legal principle? The same Ramsey County judge who heard the Republican lawsuit over Governor Dayton's veto of legislative funding is presiding over this case. At issue is whether Fishbach can serve as both lieutenant governor and a member of the Senate at the same time. I had to assess that. As Senate president, Fishbach automatically became lieutenant governor after Tina Smith resigned when Governor Dayton appointed her to the U.S. Senate. I think it's pretty clear that uh, those two provisions of the Minnesota Constitution make clear you can't have one foot in the executive branch and one foot in the legislative branch. Charles Nowen is the attorney for a Democratic activist, Destiny Desoski, who lives in Fishbach's Senate district and filed suit. Our Constitution clearly lays out that we have three separate branches of government and we need to keep those branches separate and keep the power separate between those three separate branches. Desoski says her lawsuit was not motivated by partisan politics. Fishbach has her doubts. Do you think this is uh, politically motivated to keep you from participating in the Senate session? Well, it does have that potential. So does that mean you think that's what's going on here? There has been potential for political motivation through the whole, through the entire kind of process. Judge John Guthman took the case under advisement, but it's likely he will issue some kind of ruling before the legislature convenes February 20th. Senator Tina Smith is announcing an agriculture working group that will make sure Minnesota priorities are included in the upcoming federal farm bill. Just like Minnesota agriculture, it affects almost every part of Minnesota. So if you care about research, that's included in the Farm Bill. If you care about energy efficiency, that's included in the Farm Bill. If all of these issues uh, that are really important, I brought together this group of people to help make sure that they all stay front and center as we go forward. Senator Smith will hold a kickoff event for her work group in the coming weeks. This week, a grand jury met to consider the facts in the Justine Damon case. Damon was shot and killed by Minneapolis police officer Muhammad Noor last July. She had called police to report a possible assault behind her home. Hennepin County Attorney Mike Freeman has made it clear he will decide if charges will be filed against Noor, even though the grand jury is looking into it. The Bureau of Criminal Apprehension finished its investigation in September and turned the case over to Freeman, who was secretly caught on camera in December criticizing the Bureau's work. The grand jury proceedings are supposed to continue into the coming week. State lawmakers want more transparency in Minnesota's failed bid for Amazon's new headquarters. They want to know exactly what was in the proposal and have questions about payments made to the private entity that was tasked with preparing it. In a release, Senator Paul Anderson said in part, quote, it appears public funds were used to prepare this proposal, so regardless of who actually prepared it, it should be public record. Governor Dayton has said he agrees that the proposal should be released. Governor Dayton's bonding bill got a push this week from Minnesota's Office of Budget and, or Management and Budget. The governor's $1.5 billion plan includes $458 million to restore, repair, and maintain existing buildings and facilities. The Commissioner of Management and Budget and the Commissioner of Administration outlined what they consider critical state infrastructure projects included in the bonding bill. MMB Commissioner Myron Franz says the money wouldn't be going towards cosmetic changes, but instead to repairs that will only grow more expensive the longer they are put off.
The bill balances the needs of the entire state with 67% of the projects having statewide impacts, 11% of the projects in greater Minnesota, and 22% in the Twin Cities metropolitan area. The governor's bonding bill proposal is considered large by historic standards. For Republicans, they say they'll focus more on transportation funding. That is one of the main issues that divides the Minnesota legislature just about every session. The St. Paul Federation of Teachers and the school district are working through the weekend as they negotiate a contract agreement. If they don't come to a consensus, teachers will strike starting Tuesday. It's something both sides are prepared for but hope to avoid. Our educators don't take walking out of their classroom lightly. That's how frustrated they are right now. We're vetting ideas and we're asking teachers to be innovative and creative and they're demanding the same of us. And we're doing this in a time of very limited finances. If the strike does happen, both sides are working to set up student safe sites. So far, the Boys and Girls Clubs have offered locations and the mayor's office offered to open rec centers. The district says if a strike happens, schools will have to close for two days, but after that, 13 schools will open for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Seven schools will be open for elementary students to spend time during the day. Minnesota House Republicans say tax cuts at the federal level could lead to lower energy prices here at home. Pat Garofalo and Nolan West announced legislation this week they say will help save customers $200 million a year. This means more money in the pockets of small businesses, of families, uh, even large energy, energy users. This is going to be more money into Minnesota's economy, and it's going to provide more affordable rates for our customers. Lawmakers say the bill would allow the Public Utilities Commission to refund rates retroactively up to the first of this year. Coming up, it's one of the most popular spots for walleye fishing in Minnesota. After months of studies, the regulations expected to be in place on Lake Mille Lacs this summer. Plus, political analysis all just ahead. A review of DNR research methods on Lake Mille Lacs confirms that, for the most part, the DNR is doing its work correctly. The report was so highly anticipated that Governor Dayton insisted on meeting with its leader the day after the Super Bowl. But as Bill Lund tells us, despite a confirmation of DNR methods, the news is not good for those who like to fish for walleye on Mille Lacs. On Mille Lacs this week, resort owner Greg Fisher pulls a walleye through the ice. Hey, hey, got one. And while it's not a keeper, Fisher and his daughter Susie hope there will be more keepers this season. Get an idea if there's any type of spatial distribution. Back in St. Paul, biologist Chris Vandergoot with the U.S. Geological Survey reviews Mille Lacs data with DNR Fisheries Chief Don Pereira. Vandergoot led a panel to review how the DNR does its research on Mille Lacs. For the most part, the panel came back and said the DNR is doing its work correctly. The amount of effort that the uh, Minnesota DNR allocates to sampling this fishery is comparable, if not higher, to other similar surveys in North America. There were some surprises to the panel. One, that even with walleye restrictions in place, fishing pressure on Mille Lacs is extraordinary. And I think all, all the panels were like, oh, wow. This really is a pressured system. It's a popular system. It's Minnesota. It's near the Twin Cities. It, it stands to reason. Despite confirmation the DNR is doing its research correctly, for anglers, the news likely won't make walleye fishing any better this year, with what appears to be another catch-and-release-only season ahead. It looks this year like it's going to be catch-and-release. Correct. Okay. And that we're trying to figure out what we can do, if anything, to keep from closing it 
midseason. You know, we really want to try to keep it open at least through Labor Day if we can. Tough news for resort-owning families like the Fishers, who despite this nice northern pike on Wednesday, keep waiting for better news about Mille Lacs walleye numbers. Bill Lund, 5 Eyewitness News. And time now for political analysis. I'm joined by a former press secretary for Governor Dayton, Catherine Tanucci, and Annette Meeks from the Freedom Foundation of Minnesota. Thank you both for being here. Bombshell news, really, on Friday from Congressman Rick Nolan that he is not going to seek re-election in 2018. I know this took you by surprise because it took everybody by surprise. What does this say about the landscape there now in the 8th District? Well, Minnesota's already very exciting election cycle just got a little more exciting. Uh, Congressman Nolan has served the 8th District so well um, in, in, in D.C. And, and is so beloved in the district. He's defied political odds there cycle after cycle. And, and you know, in 2016, uh, President Trump won the district, but Congressman Nolan got reelected. So it's... It's a, it's a changing district. Once reliably Democratic, it's become more um, uh, unpredictable. And so this, is gonna, this race is, could be wide open and will be very interesting to watch. And we know there's going to be a lot of outside money coming in. In the last few election cycles, it's been literally tens of millions of dollars. The one difference on the Republican side, unless Stuart Mills changes his mind and decides to run, there's not a candidate with deep pockets uh, that can fund a, a big campaign. So what's going to happen? Well, I think, and the same is true on the DFL side, that there's not a lot of candidates with deep pockets, so they're going to have a lot of catching up to do in a multi-million dollar congressional race that's going to draw national attention. I think what's most interesting about this is the results from caucuses last Tuesday. I think that's probably what nudged. Um, Congressman Nolan served honorably as a very reliable liberal in, in the Congress for decades, and I think it's interesting that uh, Rebecca Otto carried the 8th district, and, and it's a new radical group of environmentalists that are taking over the DFL in the 8th district, and I think he didn't see a path to victory that would be easy enough to warrant the fight it would take. He was getting a little squeezed a little bit from both sides, wasn't he? Yeah, I would, um, you know, to put the context, of, you know, caucuses into context, though, it's a very limited number of uh, of people who show up, and it's it's a fraction of who votes in fact on election day. So it's a small, it's a, it's a, it's significant, but not it doesn't tell the whole story. It's a it's a small group on both sides, right. but much smaller on the Republican side. And Annette, are you concerned about that? Only about twelve thousand Republicans showed up for caucuses, about three times as many Democrats. Again, we're talking about small numbers, but these are the people who are really active politically? Well, I think that this is the death knell for, for precinct caucuses. It's time for Minnesota to join the rest of the country, have regular primaries where they are politically, uh, like, like most, most states do, you have an endorsed candidate or candidate slate, and then you go in and have a, a, a party a primary where you take a Republican ballot or you take a Democrat ballot. But it's time for us to join the 21st century. We like our politics so much in Minnesota. We have caucuses <laughs> and a primary and a, yes. coming up in August yes. and then a general election. It just never, it never seems to end. Let's talk about the caucus uh, results. Uh, obviously, good news for Tim Walls. He won with 31%. But I think Rebecca Otto may have come out of this as, as a big winner, too, because she finished only 11 points behind. It, I mean, it's news. I would remind everyone that 
Governor Dayton was never even on that uh, that ballot in 2010 when he was first running for governor. And so it's not it doesn't tell the whole story. And in fact, people may remember that R.T. Ryback won that preferential uh, poll in 2010, and he was not even the endorsed candidate. So like a lot can change between now and the convention, and even more can change between now and the primary. And we should mention that on the Republican side, while Jeff Johnson won a big victory over undecided, <laughs> essentially, <laughs> who came in second, uh, Tim Pawlenty, uh, by all appearances, looks like he's getting into this race. I think he will get into the race, and I think we'll have a very competitive endorsement fight. But as I said, uh, it's, it's really too bad because you have wonderful candidates like Margaret Anderson Kelleher, who uh, won the endorsement, lost the primary. Paul Thiessen, Representative Paul Thiessen, who already dropped out of the DFL race. I mean, there really is a problem in, in our caucus selection, and, and I think this will be the end of it. So she thinks there might be a primary battle on the Republican side. Do you think there will be one on the Democratic side for governor? I expect so. I expect there's a number of candidates who are ready to, to campaign through a primary. All right, and that can be a healthy thing. Sometimes it, it makes you battle-tested for the general election, no question about that. And your name is in the news more often, so we'll see what happens. Catherine and Annette, thanks for being here. Face-off is next, but first we'll talk a little bit about the government shutdown. A deal has been reached, but what are some Republicans and Democrats saying about it? We'll be back in two minutes. In Washington, the government shutdown is over, and it didn't last long. In fact, if you blinked, you might have missed it. Actually, most of us were sleeping while it happened. On Friday, the U.S. House passed the bipartisan budget measure in the wee hours of the morning. Some House conservatives are criticizing the bill over excessive spending. Meanwhile, House Democrats say the bill fails to resolve the fate for young undocumented immigrants or dreamers or people in the DACA program, whichever you want to, uh, however you want to phrase it. Uh, joining me now, Mike Erlinson, former DFL party chair, and Annette Meeks from the Freedom Foundation. Uh, let's start with you, Annette. Again, the second government shutdown in just a couple of weeks. This one, again, nobody even knew. It had no impact. But uh, what's going on here, and how is this likely to impact the elections coming up in 2018 as voters try to assess what's happening? Well, it's kind of like the stock market. We're, we're having these wild swings one way and the other way. And we have some big issues that Congress needs to deal with. Uh, DACA being one of them, that they have a very short time frame in which to deal with that, and they just keep kicking the can down the road. So I think it's time that they start negotiating. They negotiated a two-year budget deal with a small little blip uh, from one senator. They got it passed. So let's get that done with some of these big issues. But still, the ongoing funding only lasts, uh, what, a little over a month? Uh, so we, we could be back in this position again at some point, but uh, what's it going to take for them to actually, you know, come up with a long-term deal? Well, they probably should go back to the real process of how you're supposed to do appropriations bills, which is what the funding bills for the government are, which there are 13 of them, and they used to pass all of them independently, and you'd debate transportation, and you'd debate defense, and you'd debate housing, instead of throwing it all into one huge bill. I think Annette got it right. They're just kicking the can down the road. Now they kicked it to March. Does March go to April? Does April go to May? I mean, and this adds to the frustration that exists in the, in the, amongst the American people. It makes them all mad at Congress for sort of not doing their job. And so it's, I don't, you know, I think it's going to have an impact on the elections. I think it feeds into the sort of all of the draining the swamp that we've talked about in the past from Donald Trump, right? They, people just don't like this way. Now, the House and Senate elections were already going to be fascinating to watch, but here in Minnesota, they got even more fascinating because Rick Nolan, who has narrowly defeated Stuart Mills in the previous two elections, announced to the surprise of just about everyone that he's not running for re-election in 2018. Uh, do you see this 
as a better chance for a Republican pickup in the 8th District than they've had well, since, Gil, since uh, Gutnick held the job? Well, I think we have two open seats, the first and the eighth, and both of which are going to be very, very competitive and attract millions. I said millions. Gutnick, I meant crevasse. That's you know okay. I, mean. I knew. <laughs> I'm going, going back to the days of it the happens. first district. It's, uh, we're going to have some very competitive races in both the first and the eighth, and I think this is going to attract millions of outside dollars. And I also think that it's going to have a, a desirable effect with two U.S. Senate races on the ticket here in Minnesota and our statewide constitutional offices. I think there's going to be a lot of D.C. political outside groups that'll just move offices here. Now there's a uh, candidate, Pete Stauber, on the Republican side who'd been gearing up a campaign, so his campaign infrastructure is already in place, but, uh, and there was a Democrat who was getting ready to challenge Nolan possibly in a primary, but if new candidates come in, there's not a lot of time to build a, a, a campaign. Well, there's not a lot of time to build a campaign, although on the other hand, you know, we talked to, you guys talked about Palente in the earlier segment, right? He's not in the race for governor yet, right? So it can be done by the right candidate uh, put together. And, and unfortunately, and today, more money is spent by outside groups than is spent by the candidates themselves. And so there, there will be plenty of money to help uh, the Democrat hang on to that seat, whoever the Democrat ultimately is. Yeah, literally, it's been tens of millions of dollars the last couple of cycles. Uh, that number may get larger than ever. And it has. And, and you know, to, to uh, politely disagree with my friend, uh, that seat has gone back and forth. In 2010, the Republicans won that seat. I think it's a very, and Donald Trump carried it in 2016. It's a very competitive district. And I think the first district will also surprise a lot of folks uh, with a very competitive race and a very competitive primary on the Republican side. Now, when the Republicans did win that, uh, they only held it for one term. <laughs> which, you know, might be indicative of how it is very much a swing district, but still leans slightly uh, Democrat. Real quickly, uh, Michelle Fishbach went to court. She wants to both be a state senator and lieutenant governor. Uh, real quickly, how do you think that's going to turn out? Well, my gut would be that they're not going to allow her to do both. I think in the 21st century, it's a little bit different than the court cases they're referencing back in the 1800s, right, where this, these jobs are independently elected and they probably have, should have an independent servant person serving in them. And the Senate, uh, more important, it, it's such a narrow uh, margin there, and there's a special election for Dan Schoen's seat. How important is it for Republicans to try to win that and, and build a two-seat majority? I think that's why they're working so hard for the election that's tomorrow. A special election on a Monday, anything could happen. We could have a blizzard that will affect the outcome of that race. So I think it's very important, and I do think the judge has a very, very heavy burden in deciding, Michelle, she was elected by the people of her district. She should be able to continue to serve them. All right. A lot of moving parts here yes. in Minnesota politics, as usual. We'll be keeping an eye on all of it, Mike and Annette. Thank you both for being here. We'll be back in 90 seconds. You may recall Governor Dayton paid $6,000 for a seat at last week's Super Bowl. Well, North Dakota's governor, Doug Burgum, says he will repay $37,000 for tickets XL Energy provided for him. He says he's doing it to eliminate the perception of any conflict of interest. Meanwhile, remember this video we showed you of an Eagles fan who walked out of U.S. Bank Stadium on Sunday with one of the seats? Well, that fan will only have to pay $125 to replace the stolen stadium property. U.S. Bank Stadium officials say they're not going to take further action against the fan. That is all the time we have for now. We'll see you back here again next week for another edition of At Issue.